Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. There is some way in which summer and Shakespeare go together. At least we think so on this particular show. And for this episode, producer Jonathan McPants and I decided that rather than, I don't rather than do our typical show, we do lots of little bits of things. We're kind of in love with that kind of format right now anyway. So, yeah, you're going to hear a short interview and performance involving outdoor comedy Shakespeare. You're going to hear another short interview and performance of indoor tragedy Shakespeare. You're going to hear a poem written by a cockroach about Shakespeare. You're going to hear the theories of a Supreme Court justice about Shakespeare. And lastly, (laughs) oh, the BBC sitcom. It's called Upstart Crow. It's an actual sitcom about Shakespeare's life. It's all coming up after the news. summer and something about summer says Shakespeare. I don't know. There's Shakespeare festivals. There's outdoor Shakespeare. So we decided we would do, as we often do, a Shakespeare show. And then we decided that, I don't know why, we would sort of chop it up into lots of interesting little bits and pieces and morsels. Morsels is the word I'm looking for. So we have morsels today. And some of the morsels include a theory that the late Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens had about Shakespeare. The production up in Lennox by Shakespeare and Company of Coriolanus, or Coriolanus, depending on how you feel about him. And we'll have the reading of the poem by Archie the Cockroach. Archie the Cockroach wrote a poem years and years ago about Pete the Parrot, who actually knew Shakespeare. And it turns out that Shakespeare was kind of a mournful guy, very disappointed in himself for having been a playwright. We'll also be telling you about a BBC multi-camera Shakespeare sitcom called Upstart Crow. But we're going to begin with outdoor Shakespeare because outdoor Shakespeare is just part of the whole thing. And some of the outdoor Shakespeare is already done and gone because summer is departing. Summer doth depart on swallow's wings. But fortunately, uh, in New Haven, the Elm Shakespeare Company is doing Shakespeare in the Park, a production of the Comedy of Errors. It will be opening tonight at Edgerton Park in New Haven and runs through September 1st. So you have plenty of time to see it. And for more info, you would visit elmshakespeare.org. So joining us now from said company, Rebecca Goodhart, the producing artistic director for Elm Shakespeare Company, Benjamin Kearns, who plays Dromeo of Syracuse, and K.P. Powell, who plays Antiphilus of Syracuse in this production of The Comedy of Errors. It's The Comedy of Errors. Kind of cheeky of Shakespeare. And this is going to be The Comedy of Errors. So, Rebecca, I'll start with you with some highly imaginative questions. Why did you pick The Comedy of Errors for this year? The Comedy of Errors, we should say, is sort of a, a knockabout comedy, even for Shakespeare. This is He's really going for the laughs on this one. He really is going for the laughs. And I love all of the insanity and all of the mix-up, because the whole, the whole story is about taking four twins, two sets of identical twins, and mixing and matching them and creating absolute chaos and then sorting it all out in the end. And so I love 
all of the symmetry to it and all of the chaos, and it's just fun. But I'll tell you, I actually think it's a play that's underrated. A lot of people think that, oh, it's just the knockabout mix-up comedy. And I think while it's really early Shakespeare, it's beautiful. It's got gorgeous poetry in it. And I think it has some real resonance for our world right now. Everybody in the play is afraid and full of angst and really on edge. And they eventually figure it out and they figure it out and find themselves and find each other. And so I I think that it is a very gentle, gentle morality tale for our times in a lot of ways while still being ridiculously funny. Another person who thinks it's underrated is the great literary critic and theorist Harold Bloom, uh, who lives nearby. And maybe you can get him to do a cameo or something. I think he's 89. I don't know. Wouldn't that be great? Let him do a little walk on with a spear or something like that. Oh, that would be Awesome. Um, I'm sure he gets offers like that all the time. He was in Game <laughs> of Th- he was uh, he was in Game of Thrones. People missed it, but he was there just briefly. So I note that in your marketing, you have <laughs> visually echoed the style of a certain children's author whom we recently did a show about. Just in case you're in some kind of protracted copyright fight, I'll say that it is uh, somebody whose name sounds a bit like Proctor Zeus. Uh, <laughs> so what's going on with that? I would say it's Zeus inspired, and that came really early to me. And it's been echoing literally for years while I've thought about this play. And one of the things I like about it is the thing about Dr. Seuss is it's all allegorical. And that it's funny and it's whimsical and it's chaotic. And it is happening in another place and another time that is delicious and fun. And yet we know it's talking about us right now. It's also very modern. And so there is this ability that Seuss has to be both delightful and actually relevant. You know, it's the Lorax or it's star-bellied sneetches. And of course, we don't have any star-bellied sneetches. We're all human on stage and we're, you know, speaking in lots of, of beautiful poetry. But I do think that we can capture both the whimsy and the allegorical nature. So that's why I kept coming back to Seuss again and again about why is that right? Because it wasn't about cartoon. It wasn't about just the silly. It was actually about that there's something a little bit more to it and that it's both modern, but it's not you can't put your finger on when it is. It's a whimsical, fantastical place where you buy the ridiculous things that happen in this play, and it's ridiculous. Right. I, a lot of people, the comedy of errors, they think it's about the 2017 Philadelphia Phillies, but it's not, as you point out, <laughs> it's not actually located in any particular time. All right. I think we need to bring Benjamin and KP into this. Uh, they're going to perform a brief scene from this, but I think we need to set it up. So KP, maybe get us going here. Tell us uh, what's going on here. Yes. Without, without giving too much away, me and my partner, Dromeo, have been in the town long enough that we've been constantly being confused and mistaken for other people that already live there. And in this moment, I have just had a wonderful connection with the woman. I might be in love for the first time. And then I'm interrupted by uh, Dromeo coming running away because some woman that he does not know is claiming to be his wife and throwing herself all over him, which uh, you wouldn't want. (laughs) Uh, So Benjamin Kearns and KP Powell, action. (laughs) Why? How now? 
Dromeo, where runst thou so fast? Do you know me, sir? Am I Dromeo? Am I your man? Am I myself? Thou art Dromeo, thou art my man, thou art thyself. I am an ass. I am a woman's man, and besides myself. What woman's man, and how besides thyself? Mary, sir, besides myself, I am due to a woman. One that claims me. One that haunts me. One that will have me. What claim lay she to thee? Mary, sir, such a claim as you would lay to your horse, and she would have me as a beast. Not that I, being a beast, she would have me, but that she, being a very beastly creature, lays claim to me. What is she? Mary, sir, she's the kitchen wench. And all grease. And I know not what use to put her to, but to make a lamp of her and run from her by her own light. If she lives till doomsday, she'll burn a week longer than the whole world. (laughs) Uh, What complexion is she of? Swart, like my shoe. But her face? Nothing half so clean kept. For why? She sweats. A man may go over shoes in the grime of it. Why, that's a fault that water will mend. No, sir, tis in grain. Noah's flood could not do it. What's her name? Nell, sir. But her name and three quarters, that's an L and three quarters, will not measure her from hip to hip. Then she bears some breath? No longer from head to foot than from hip to hip. She's spherical, like a globe. I could find out countries in her. In what part of her body stands Ireland? Mary, sir. In her buttocks, I found it out by the bogs. Where France? Mary, sir, in her forehead, armed and reverted, making war against her ear. Where England? Oh, I looked for chalky cliffs, but could find no whiteness in them. But I guess it stood in her chin by the salt room which ran betwixt France and it. Where Spain? Faith, I saw it not, but felt it hot in her breath. Where America, the Indies? Oh, sir, upon her nose, all o'er embellished with rubies, carbuncles, sapphires, declining their rich aspect to the hot breath of Spain, who sent whole armados of carracks to be ballast at her nose. Where Belgia, the Netherlands? Oh, sir, I did not look so low. And to conclude, this drudge or diviner lays claim to me, called me Dromeo, swore I was assured to her, told me of the privy marks I had about me, as the mark on my shoulder, the mole on my neck, the great wart on my left arm, that I, amazed, ran from her as a witch. Go, hie thee presently, post to the road, and if the wind blow any way from shore, I will not harbor in this town tonight. And see. <laughs> So that's actually kind of a famous scene. And don't think for a second that I, as an Irish-American, missed that whole thing about how <laughs> Ireland is in the buttocks and the bog and all that kind of stuff. I understand what you Shakespeare people are up to. I understand what's being said. So I want to just talk to you guys a little bit about the challenges here. These are separated at birth twins. So you're going to play the twins of other actors. Benjamin, how does that work? Well, certainly a lot is done through some, some things can be done through costume, you know, if you have two actors in identical costumes, but what's more fun is to delve into like how can you mimic each other's physicality, how can you mimic speech patterns and the way that the timing of your jokes are and I I have the advantage of the guy who plays my twin brother is an actor by the name of Christopher Seiler who's been a colleague of mine for, for a number of years. We haven't worked together in about 10 years so it's really great to connect with him to watch him work and to be able to sort of ape some of his mannerisms while he apes some of mine. So KP, is that something you do explicitly you and the other actor or are you just kind of watching that other person all the time seeing if you can pick up on stuff? Yes, I know uh, for me and Manu, the one playing the other Antiphilus, we 
very specifically are looking at certain moments and certain things in the scenes and trying to find which things that, that could live in our bodies and be believed and be subtle but obvious enough to pick up if you're looking for but not enough to be like hey look how dumb you are that I feel like I have to paint a picture for you with my fingers it's just those little things that help tell the story of you know when you when you meet twins in real life you see them growing up and mimicking each other and there's all the stories of twins separated at birth marrying similar people and living similar lives and so we just wanted to purposefully kind of echo that in some of our behavior throughout the show to also help uh, the audience understand the ridiculousness of why people in this town would believe that we were the same person. <laughs> so I, I want to ask, and we'll, we can bring Rebecca back into this too. I mean, I have to tell a quick story, which is that a few years ago, I was doing a thing with a symphony that was tied to Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream. And I had been asked to write some certain, some things, which I then had to kind of perform as narration. And it rained. There was a rain <laughs> delay. And then when we came back, every freaking bug in this meadow in Simsbury <laughs> came to life. And I aspirated one of them. And I mean, like, I really aspirated this bug. And I got, like, tears pouring down my cheeks because, like, I don't know what to do because I'm about to cough up a dragonfly or something. And, I mean, there must be, Rebecca, just challenges being outdoors in an environment you can't control the way you can control a proscenium. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, so yes. You know, and, and, and every, you know, on our breaks and sometimes, we, you know, we sit around and we everyone reviles everybody of the stories of, oh, well, you remember that year with the flood or that year. So everybody has their their tales, which, of course, get, more and more exaggerated, but while you're in them, they're not exaggerated at, at all. You know, <laughs> you, last night, for example, we lost uh, our first night of technical rehearsals because it rained. At mm. this point, we've got, we build it into the schedule so that we have the time so that it isn't panicking. You know, the chances are between the time you start building the set and the time you close the show, you're, that's that's over a month. It's going to rain unless you're working in Arizona, you know, or, or some very dry place. So, so you have to build it in. There's also all sorts of safety protocols. It affects the shape of our set, so we don't have super steep stairs. We've got this crazy stuff called um, shark coat, which is like sandpaper, so the whole stage is bumpy, so it's not slippery. We have levels, you know, sort of DEFCON 1 and DEFCON 2. You know, we're at the place where everybody talks twice as fast and their feet move half as slow. <laughs> and then the next level, wear whatever shoes you want. And then the next level, simplify the fight choreography. And then the next level, lose your microphone. And then, you know, and if it lightnings, do we pull off the people off the top of the uh, big metal scaffolding? So, you know, there's, yes, there's protocols upon protocols, and it can be really difficult, but then it's just magical. When it all comes together, there's nothing better than being out in that field with the breeze and the moon and the set and the amazing stories. It, it is something that is makes it worth all of the insanity of dealing with the weather. Right. So basically what you're saying is that by September 1st, one of the three of you will be dead. Uh, <laughs> I get that. Yeah, um, basically. 
I understand that? it now. So, Benjamin, I, you know, I just want to get a little bit more of both the downside and the upside. But I think maybe it's all upside. I mean, I, I don't know. what What's the advantage of doing it this way? Why do Shakespeare outdoors with people bringing babies and, you know, munching on sandwiches and stuff while you're uh, doing your Shakespeare? To me, the, the best thing about doing it outside, and especially in the park, like it should be noted that, you know, where we do it, it it's not a theater with established seats. Which means that whatever night you come to, you'll never be turned away. You know, there's never going to not be a seat for you. It should be noted, too, that the performances are also free to everyone in the community who comes. So my favorite thing about working for um, Shakespeare is that it breaks down this idea that Shakespeare is some sort of like cultural responsibility or something that's reserved for, you know, very elite or very educated people. I, you know, I, I, I really disagree with that. And I really think that it's popular entertainment for anyone who, who would like to enjoy it. So my favorite thing about there is that, you know, people come and, you know, they just they set up, people have dinner. And I, I frankly love it when people bring their kids because there's nothing more rewarding than watching kids laugh at the show because it means, you know, they get it. They're really following in that you know, that language is not antiquated. The language is not too complicated. You know, if a kid can sit there and enjoy it and find fun in it in uh, maybe the same or maybe even a different way than the parents who are sitting right next to them, I think that's really terrific. And it's a great leveler, I think. Well, I mean, KP, there's also there's even an argument that this is getting back to roots in a way that that the audience of the Globe Theater would probably be a little bit more like the audience, at least at that level of sort of casualness, casual enthusiasm than being in some climate controlled, you know, art house. Yeah, there's no sit there, be quiet, behave type mentality when you come to outdoor Shakespeare. We're talking right at you and we're trying to get you to participate and be a part of this to make you really feel like you're a part of the world that we're creating. And I totally agree with Ben. And I think it's so foolish how often people are taught at such a young age going into Shakespeare that it's hard to understand. That's going to be difficult because who doesn't understand? Most of the words you understand, but soft with light through yonder window breaks. You understand all those words, except the syntax might be a little weird. But if you can understand Yoda, you can understand Shakespeare. (laughs) If people watch Big Bang Theory having no idea how like astronomical physics work and you still get the jokes, you're like, oh, as long as I know what I'm saying, the audience knows what they're saying. And I think it's fun to come out and be with your kids and know that it's free and there's so low stakes and just go, we can go and have a good time and be told a story. Because, I mean, from the dawn of time, the caveman came back and say, you won't believe what happened to me while I was hunting that gazelle. <laughs> and ever since then, we've been telling stories. And that's why I think Shakespeare is one of the best storytellers. And so we keep coming back to him. Mm, strong the force in Benvolio is. Uh, all <laughs> See, right. so I understood we, that. Uh, no, it is. Uh, yeah, you totally got that. All right. So we have to stop now. But I should say once again that we're recording this a week before they open on August 15th. So if you're wondering, if you're thinking they're going, it didn't rain last night. Last right. night was when the robots <laughs> took over civilization. Okay. Well, that hasn't happened yet. I don't know what's actually it's happening uh, the night before this. So thanks for doing this, folks. Of course. A pleasure, oh, Colin. Thank you. But you're going to go to this wonderful free production of The Comedy of Errors. It runs through September 1st with this terrific cast. It's going to be loads of fun and uh, you're going to bring everybody you know. So Dromeo, go Dromeo and take these thousand marks of gold. What do you want me to do with all of this cash flow? Hey the hotel, I mean the motel, I mean the Ephesus. 
So no compendiums about Shakespeare would be complete without, of course, the argument, which I regard mostly as meretricious, that Shakespeare could not possibly have authored these plays. These plays were authored by a titanic intellect, which he just could not possibly have been. Many of the people who embrace that idea do so under the mantle of our being Oxfordians. I was distressed to read in The New Yorker that Justice John Paul Stevens, for whom I had great esteem during his lifetime for lots of other reasons, was one such person. And here to tell us more about that is Tyler Foggett, editor of the Talk of the Town section of The New Yorker. Her piece, Justice Stevens' Dissenting Shakespeare Theory, appears in the August 5th and 12th issues. Thanks for doing this. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm um, always happy to talk Shakespeare. So, so apparently so was Justice Stevens. And Justice Stevens had been, I guess, kind of radicalized to this view through some moot court exercise that he engaged in, right? Exactly. Yeah, there was a moot court in 1987 that he sat on with um, Justice Brennan and Justice Blackman. And basically, they were listening to arguments about, um, you know, who wrote Shakespeare. One side was arguing in favor of William Shakespeare, the man from Stratford, the man who most people consider to be the author of Macbeth and Hamlet and the rest. And then the other argument was in favor of the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. And the man from Stratford won. So at the end of the moot court, the opinion was that William Shakespeare was, in fact, the author of his own plays. But when it was Stevens's turn to speak, he seemed quite sympathetic to the Oxford side. And he basically said, even though you guys didn't win this moot court, you have brought up a lot of concerning things. And there are just a lot of questions that remain unanswered and basically told them that, you know, he saw where they were coming from. And then I think that was what sort of sent him on a mission to learn more. And he eventually visited Shakespeare's home in Stratford-upon-Avon and then was upset to see that there weren't really any books and no evidence of the man was there, I think is the way that he put it. Um, And he later wrote a law review article in which he seemed even more sympathetic to the Oxford theory than he had been before. And so it was just something that he continued to sort of write and speak about. And yeah, I think it all stemmed from that initial moot court hearing. Right. So I guess the most dismissive view that some of us might take of the Oxfordians uh, is that they're a bunch of credulous snobs that Mm -hmm. I should probably get that idea out of my system because they're having their annual meeting like five blocks from where I'm sitting this fall. But ultimately, what they're saying is a commoner who lived four days ride from London couldn't possibly have written all these plays. As I said before, this is the these plays are the work of a titanic intellect. It must have been someone you know with all the the, the attributes of a noble and all the opportunities of a noble at that time. Do you think that? And I also not, I read not only your article but the uh, piece by James Shapiro, a foremost Shakespeare scholar, or maybe the foremost Shakespeare scholar who had a little lengthy correspondence with Stevens about this. Do you think Stevens was able to differentiate his own thoughts about the authorship from that sort of, you know, overarching penumbra of snobbery? Yeah, I mean, I think that most of the Oxfordians that, I mean, I spoke to a bunch of them for my article, and they were all very clear about the fact that, you know, they really don't like to consider themselves snobs. And they're saying that, you know, it's not that we don't think that someone, you know, who was sort of born as a commoner and, you know, lived far away from London couldn't have done it. It's just that it would be really hard to pull something like this off while leaving behind basically no evidence. And so, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the um, 
the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference in Hartford because it's taking place at the Mark Twain house. And Mark Twain himself was an anti-Stratfordian. So he didn't necessarily say that he thought that Edward de Vere wrote the plays, but he, you know, definitely thought that there was little chance that Shakespeare did it. And he, you know, wrote this book about it called Is Shakespeare Dead? And in the book, he says, you know, when Shakespeare died in Stratford, no one really cared about it. It wasn't an event. When he left his will behind, it was a businessman's will and not a poet's. It didn't mention a single book. It didn't leave behind a single poem, a play, an unfinished literary work, no manuscript. As far as anybody knows, Shakespeare never wrote a letter to anybody in his life. We've never seen such a letter. We don't really know that he traveled. And so I think that a lot of the Oxfordians, especially the Oxfordians who are lawyers, and there are a ton of them that seem to have gone into the law, and it seems like they are stuck on this evidentiary question. And just based on what I heard from the Oxfordians who got a chance to meet Justice Stevens when he was awarded the Oxfordian of the Year Award by their organization, he sort of spoke about it in those terms. So he was saying, you know, it couldn't have been the guy from Stratford because he just didn't leave behind any evidence, but you could probably convict Edward de Vere of it because, you know, he has all of these biographical parallels to, you know, things that come up in the plays. And it just seems like this is a guy who could have done it based on, you know, the evidence that we have. And so I think that that is how they try to frame it rather than like an elitism argument, but more as, you know, as an evidentiary question. Well, Tyler Foggett, your article was great. And because you're so interested in this, I'm very, I'm very hopeful that you're coming to Hartford this fall to the Mark Twain house so that we can meet in person. Tyler Foggett is an editor of the Talk of the Town section of The New Yorker. And her piece, Justice Stevens's Dissenting Shakespeare Theory, appears in the August 5th and 12th issue of The New Yorker. Thanks for talking to me today. Of course. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. And we have to move to a break right now. When we come back, we have a panoply of morsels. That actually is an unknown Shakespeare play, The Panoply of Morsels. You know, it often gets said, well, everything you could possibly ever do with Shakespeare has been done. But we're about to prove that statement wrong because I'm pretty sure it has never been the case that two artistic directors of the same Shakespeare company have performed a scene of Coriolanus on two telephone lines on a radio show. I mean, certain elements of that may have been replicated in the past. But what I just described before, I'm willing to bet has never happened until now. It's about to happen. Let me tell you how that's going to be. If you listen to every episode of our show, and take careful notes, which I know tens of thousands of people do, you'll know that in the past we've been up to Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts to meet with and and talk to Tina Packer, the founding artistic director there. She's now playing Volumnia in their upcoming uh, performance of either Coriolanus or Coriolanus. We will in just a moment establish which. Alan Burroughs is in his 20th season as artistic director of Shakespeare and Company, and he's playing the title character in Coriolanus or Coriolanus as the case may be. So, Tina Packer, let's pin that one down right at the beginning. Is it Coriolanus? Coriolanus? Okay. Yeah. Because I understand you can sort of go either way. Now, you can, but the town is called Coriolanus. Right. So if you go into the town, the town is Coriolanus. He is Coriolanus. 
All right. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and we should say that this production that you're doing up there, Tina, is um, six workshop performances uh, starting next Wednesday, August 21st. And when we say workshop performances, that means, for example, people from the audience can be brought up on stage and stabbed to death, things like that. Um, <laughs> what what actually is going to happen at the workshop? Well, it's, it's Alan Burroughs' brainchild, so I'm going to let him answer. All right, Alan. <laughs> well, a workshop... It's essentially an enhanced stage reading. That means that we'll have scripts nearby or in hand, and there will be design, we'll be in costume, and there will be elements of set design and such. And we will have been banging away at this script for four or five days. So it's not like a cold reading where we stand up there and just do it in music stands. We'll be moving around and it will be more enhanced. We've been doing this in the wintertime with our Jane Austen pieces, Pride and Prejudice, and we'll do it again with Sense and Sensibility. And people really respond to the fact that we're focusing on the text and the relationships, and it's a quick hit on the play, and we find it very effective, and we've gotten good response for it. So, Alan, while you still have the floor, it feels like it's a summer of Coriolanus, as we know the public theater is doing it in, in Central Park as well. Is there any particular reason? Does this speak to a moment? or to a zeitgeist? I think it does speak to a zeitgeist. I think, you know, there are things that are floating around in the collective ether. I, uh, I picked this before I knew the public, you know, chose their production and has little bearing on it other than, you know, hitching my horse to their wagon. But I really think that, you know, you can find that different titles just come out of the air at the same time. And, uh, This is naturally about a leader who's really quite pissed off and ends up being quite a poor leader of the people. So I can't imagine what that would have to do with the present moment. (laughs) Can I just add something? Yes. Because the thing about Coriolanus is he is physically very brave and a great warrior. Mm. But he's also, he knows himself so little and says the most stupidest things at really (laughs) sensitive times and explodes totally unbeknownst to him, he explodes political and social situations in ways that should never be exploded. And I I do actually think we have a lot to learn from it right at this moment, both for good and for bad, if I can put it like that. Right. I still can't imagine a direct analogy, but I'm sure you've got one. Um, So, um, (laughs) Tina, I have to ask you what your theory of Volumnia is. So there's this book by Alice Miller that's called The Drama of the Gifted Child, and it's it's about what happens when, yeah. when yeah when children yeah. don't have a normal emotional channel to approve to get emotional approval from yeah. their parents. They have to function only on merit or on doing certain things that represent accomplishments, and that's sort of one way to look at this relationship, right? Coriolanus he, he wants mom to think he's great. Absolutely, he wants mom to think he's great. We never know what happened to the father. There's no mention even of the father. She says, were he the only son of my womb, which he is, of course. And and so her whole life is bound up with him. But she wants him to be a warrior. And she sent him to a war, to a cruel war, I sent him, you know, at the age of about 12 or 13. And he came home being the hero and the champion. And he's been a killing machine ever since. So he gets accolades from his mother for being a great warrior. It's when she wants him to do something else, i.e. be a politician, be a consul, that the trouble starts because then he has to please the people 
and he can't do it. And she's not taught him how to actually be understanding of anybody uh, other than themselves, you know. Nor does, so he, nor does he care to do it. <laughs> yes, and it was written the year that Shakespeare's own mother died. And I can't help but think that there are some parallels in here. You know, when Shakespeare had gone to London, he only ever came home once a year thereafter, even though his wife and his kids were back there. You know, and you do have to wonder what his relationship with his mother was like. Right. Actually, later in the show, we're going to be talking about this BBC sitcom called Upstart Crow, which explores comically what their relationship might have been like. But maybe not all that different from the approval-sinking Coriolanus and Volumnia. All right. So we're getting ready to perform this scene. You're getting ready to perform this scene. This is going to be history-making, obviously. We have photographers from the Guinness Book of World Records here. I believe they're up there in Lennox as well. So Alan's set this up. What scene are, are we about to hear? Well, this is essentially where a situation where the mother is essentially Volumnia is persuading Coriolanus to go talk to the people and really try to uh, essentially work with them in a way that he is really not willing to. And uh, it's, it's the first time we really see them together and the first time that we see her powers of persuasion over him. He has to show his wounds to them as well, which is the opposite to what a warrior would do. You know, he's actually got to display his wounds to them. And that's the last thing on God's earth that he wants to do. All right. I'm going to say action. I prithee now, sweet son, as thou hast said, my praises made thee first a soldier. So, to have my praise in this, perform a part thou hast not done before. Well, I must do it. Away my disposition and possess me some harlot spirit. My throat of war be turned, which choired with my drum into a pipe small as a munich. Or the virgin voice that babies lull asleep. The smiles of knaves tent in my cheeks. And schoolboys' tears take up the glasses of my sight. A beggar's tongue make motion through my lips. And my armed knees, who bowed but in my stirrup, bend like his that hath received an alms. I will not do it, lest I surcease to honor mine own truth, and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. At thy choice, then, to beg of thee, it is more my dishonor than thou of them. Come all to ruin! Let thy mother rather feel thy pride than fear thy dangerous stoutness, for I mock at death with as big a heart as thou. Do as thou list. Thy valiantness was mine. Thou suckst it from me. But, oh, thy pride, thyself. Pray be content. Mother, I'm going to the marketplace. Chide me no more. I'll mount bank their loves, cog their hearts from them, and come home beloved of all the trades in Rome. Look, I'm going. Commend me to my wife. I'll return consul, or never trust to what my tongue can do in the way of flattery further. Do your will. Bravo, bravo. And off I yeah. go. Yes, but you can With tell. my tail between my legs. He's not into it. He's not into it at all. No. no. <laughs> I think she did the father in. 
Yeah, it's it's very it's kind of a it's not that sort of Manchurian candidate relationship though because you know she's she's okay with him getting killed in battle. You know, I mean oh, that yeah. that would have been fine. Well, this is this is so much fun to listen to, and uh, well, obviously we have created theater history, but also this just sounds like such a fun experiment that you're doing up there. I don't know if fun and Coriolanus really go hand in hand, but I think it will be satisfying. <laughs> I think it will be satisfying for people because it also will be followed by a conversation around the themes that come up in a play of, of this import. We're also going to follow it up on September 1st in a reading of Julius Caesar that Tina will direct, featuring John Douglas Thompson and several other actors that you recognize from this company. And uh, so we're going with a Roman theme, essentially, in the end of August, and what we can learn from the Romans, which I think is a lot. Yeah. Well, that sounds terrific. Well, so Tina Packer, uh, as we get ready to uh, to say farewell, but not forever, this is your third appearance on our show. We always have so much fun with you. So, <laughs> so what's going to happen in 2020? What are we going to do? Do you know yet? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I do, but I dare to say. Okay, so. don't. Keep us on, keep us on tenterhooks. We, we like being on well, tenterhooks. Yeah, All right. I'm going to keep you on tenterhooks. All right. I'm very comfortable there. Tina Packer and Alan Burroughs, uh, both uh, having been or currently being artistic directors of Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. Get on their website, find out when these workshop performances are, and get your butt up there. I don't think that's a very Shakespearean statement. We're going to say farewell. <laughs> to our friends in Lennox. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you're going to hear a poem ostensibly written by a cockroach on a typewriter about Shakespeare and a look at the BBC's Shakespeare sitcom that I mentioned before, Upstart Crow. With the wife of the British ambassador Try a crack out a Troilus and Cressida Just recite an occasional sonnet And your lap will have honey upon it If she says your behavior is heinous Produced this show was by Jonathan McNichol, a joiner, with perhaps some help from Kyone Wolf, the titania of our whole production system. And uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by James Cagney, who also played Bottom, which I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. And tomorrow, tomorrow is, in fact, two tunnels below a bridge, which is to say the nose. And on the nose, we will be talking about The Boys, a series about superheroes gone bad. All right. So we're back to our Shakespeare show. In 1916, when newspapers were really great and they had everything in them, the readers of The Evening Sun in New York met a new character. His name was Archie. He was a cockroach. And he typed poems to a writer, a columnist there named Don Marquis. I think usually at night when everybody went home and Archie would jump from key to key on the typewriter. So the poems never had any capital letters or punctuation. And when we started talking about doing a summer Shakespeare show, I thought of one of the most famous poems that Archie ever wrote. It was about a parrot whom he knew who somehow knew Shakespeare. So here is the poem of Pete the Parrot. I got acquainted with a parrot named Pete recently, who is an interesting bird. Pete says he used to belong to the fellow that ran the Mermaid Tavern in London. Then I said, you must have known Shakespeare. Know him, said Pete. Poor mutt, I knew him well. He called me Pete, and I called him Bill. But why do you say poor mutt? 
Well, said Pete, Bill was a disappointed man and was always boring his friends about what he might have been and done if he only had a fair break. Two or three pints of sack and sherries and the tears would trickle down into his beard and his beard would get soppy and wilt his collar. I remember one night when Bill and Ben Johnson and Frankie Beaumont were sopping it up. Here I am, Ben, says Bill. Nothing but a lousy playwright, and with anything like luck in the breaks, I might have been a fairly decent sonnet writer. I might have been a poet if I had kept away from the theater. Yes, says Ben, I've often thought of that, Bill, but one consolation is you are making pretty good money out of the theater. Money, money, says Bill. What the hell is money? What I want is to be a poet, not a businessman. These damned cheap shows I turn out to keep the theater running break my heart. Slapstick comedies and blood and thunder tragedies and melodramas say. I wonder if that boy heard you order another bottle, Frankie. The only compensation is that I get a chance now and then to stick in a little poetry when nobody is looking. But hell's bells, that isn't what I want to do. I want to write sonnets and songs and Spenserian stanzas, and I might have done it too if I hadn't got into this frightful show game. Business, business, business. Grind, grind, grind. What a life for a man that might have been a poet. Well, says Frankie Beaumont, why don't you cut it, Bill? I can't, says Bill. I need the money. I've got a family to support down in the country. Well, says Frankie, anyhow, you write pretty good plays, Bill. Any mutt can write plays for this London public, says Bill. If he puts enough murder in them, what they want is kings talking like kings never had sense enough to talk, and stabbings and stranglings and fat men making love and clowns basting each other with clubs and cheap puns and off-color allusions to all the smut of the day. Oh, I know what the lowbrows want, and I give it to them. Well, says Ben Johnson, don't blubber into the drink. Brace up like a man and quit the rotten business. I can't, I can't, says Bill. I've been at it too long. I've got to the place now where I can't write anything else but this cheap stuff. I'm ashamed to look an honest young sonneteer in the face. I live a hell of a life, I do. The manager hands me some moldy old manuscript and says, Bill, here's a plot for you. This is the third of the month. By the tenth, I want a good script out of this that we can start rehearsals on. Not too big a cast and not too much of your damned poetry either. You know your old familiar line of hokum. They eat up that Falstaff stuff of yours, ring him in again, and give them a good ghost or two. And remember, we gotta have something Dick Burbage can get his teeth into, and be sure and stick in a speech somewhere the Queen will take for a personal compliment. And if you get in a line or two somewhere about the honest English yeoman, it's always good stuff. 
And it's a pretty good stunt, Bill, to have the heavy villain, a Moor or a Dago or a Jew or something like that, and say, I want another comic Welshman in this. But I don't need to tell you, Bill, you know this game, just some of your ordinary hokum. And maybe you could kill a little kid or two, a prince or something. They like a little pathos along with the dirt. Now you better see Burbage tonight and see what he wants in that part. Oh, says Bill, to think I am debasing my talent with junk like that. Oh, God, what I wanted was to be a poet and write sonnet serials like a gentleman should. Well, says I, Pete, Bill's plays are highly esteemed to this day. Is that so, says Pete? Poor mutt, little would he care. What poor Bill wanted was to be a poet. All right. Every once in a while, it seems kind of interesting for somebody to play Shakespeare as opposed to playing Shakespeare's roles. So what have you got? You got Tim Curry. You got Joseph Fiennes. You got Rafe Spall. They've all played Shakespeare. To that, you can add one David Mitchell, who's now starring in a series called Upstart Crow. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. You can actually get it here in America now via BritBox, via Amazon. But joining us right now is a Rob Weinert-Kent, an arts journalist and editor of American Theater Magazine. He reviewed the BBC sitcom Upstart Crow for americamagazine.org. He's joining us by Skype. Welcome to our conversation, sir. It's good to be here. I mean, I think the first thing that we have to say is that this really is, this uh, series, it is a sitcom, first and foremost. It's a sitcom with either a live audience or a laugh track. I know not which, but it's a sitcom about Shakespeare. Yeah, it, it's it's a sitcom with the same sort of one, two, three beat jokes. I would say a great majority of them are, are sort of crude and, and topical. They're also very, uh, there's a lot of Shakespeare in-jokes. Ben Elton is the creator, and he's known not only for Black Adder, which I think the show re- resembles a lot, if anyone knows Black Adder, sort of the sardonic tone and sort of anachronistic humor, but also The Thin Blue Line, which is another Rowan Atkinson, just a police sitcom. Not to be confused with the Errol Morris movie. Right. It's much lighter. It's just it's about <laughs> police working at a, at a desk in London. And so it, he's very steeped in sitcom, three camera, or whatever, how many cameras I use now, uh, tradition. I, uh, I'm, my, my, my boys are six and 10. And even though a lot of the humor is sexual in nature and, and, and crude, it goes over their heads most of it. And it's actually an introduction to quote unquote Shakespearean ways of talking and plots. And some of the richest jokes on the show, I think, are about anticipating the way Shakespeare is going to be received, uh, loved and hated by school children for generations to come. <laughs> well, if, if, you're, if your boys are six and ten, they probably get the fart jokes anyway. Yeah, uh, well, the fart jokes are there, and I think the word boobington is one that they're, they're picking up on. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, we should, in fact, just give people a little taste of this. This is from season one, episode four, Love is Not Love. This is David Mitchell as Will Shakespeare and Gemma Whalen as Kate, the landlord's daughter, I should say, if you recognize this voice, you'll definitely recognize the face if you're a Game of Throneser. She was Yara Greyjoy on Game of Thrones. So anyway, here's a little bit of back and forth between Will and Kate. These verses be my ticket to immortality. Through them will I live forever. How so, Mr. Shakespeare? I'm to have them published. 
Imagine it. A, a play is but a puff of air. A player's stinking breath doth give it life. But no sooner is it spoke than tis lost amid the burps and fartle baffles of the groundlings. <laughs> but a published poem lives forever. People love them. Particularly now, these short and easily digestible sonnets have made the epic verse cycle look so last century. Young people have such short attention spans these days. And with publishing, kids have instant entertainment in the pockets of their puffling pants. <sighs> you see them hanging around together, hunched over a book of 14-line iambic pentameter, thumbing away, transfixed like zombies, not talking to each other, not, not interacting socially, lost to the world. Get off your book of sonnets, cry parents up and down the land. You'll develop a hunch. I do worry about how their brains will develop with so little variation of stimulus to challenge their imagination. Who cares? So there's Will and Kate uh, having a fairly modern conversation about children and their attention spans, maybe even talking about the six and ten year olds who are watching this show with their father, Rob Weiner Kent. And, and there's a little bit in this, too. Rob, our audience has just heard an old, uh, very funny poem allegedly written by a cockroach named Archie called Pete the Parrot, in which Pete talks about knowing Shakespeare and how miserable Shakespeare was being a playwright. He really wanted to write poetry and sonnets. He thought that was honorable and that this wasn't. And that's a little bit of the Shakespeare we see in the series, too, right? He's not yeah. entirely happy with his lot. No, no, he's striving. I mean, we, we see him uh, in the three seasons we have. It's, it's, they play with their actual history quite a bit. We see him sort of having a reputation for boring history plays mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, should I do this young lover play that he's working on, originally called Romeo and Julian? There's one very funny bit in the when he finally does write Romeo and Juliet in which his servant, Bottom, comes up with the wonderful image of the bird who's on a string and doesn't want to, he doesn't want to let it go. And that's his image. And he continues to claim that even though, she, you know, it's, it's put into different words by Shakespeare. So there's a lot of those kind of little jokes that I don't think you even need to know Shakespeare that well, because the show works even if you don't. And if you do know a little, even a little bit of Shakespeare and the plots and famous lines, it's a delight. Right. There's a way in which you are rewarded extra for anything that you you do know. And, and I do think also some of the commentary about glass, I mean, there's a glass ceiling joke in one of the first couple of episodes, literally a glass ceiling joke. But I mean, that notion that's explained to Kate again and again, that women can't be actors and women, because for the same reason that women can't be lawyers or participate in government or anything like that. And what is that reason? Because they don't know how. And so there's this kind of circularity. Well, why don't yeah. they know how? Because they can never do it. And there's that sort of the sense of anybody who's trapped in some sort of underclass position. I mean, it's done in a very funny way. You laugh as it's being said, but you mm -hmm. realize this is, in fact, uh, the logic of, of an oppressive class. Yeah, yeah. I think I critiqued them in my review. I think they hit that point. It just becomes a little relentless, the, uh, the jokes about how Kate couldn't possibly do that. I mean, obviously, we know better. And the joke is on Shakespeare and Marlowe, who keep putting her down and saying, well, where would you put the coconuts? As, as if you need coconuts to fake a bust, which I don't even think is historically accurate. No, I, I doubt it. It seems a little Monty Python. So there are yeah. ways in which Monty Python, and especially, I'm now dating myself, Beyond the Fringe, who did oh, yeah. a very famous Shakespeare parody, I think called So That's the Way You Like It. So there's ways in which some of the British comedy, which has preceded this, has probably set this up. We should probably point out that Upstart Crow, the name actually, comes from a taunt hurled at Shakespeare by a jealous poet, Robert Greene, who, Rob, is a character also in this series. He's become one of my favorite characters. Mark Heap, this wonderful British actor, plays him and does the kind of 
phony uh, Elizabethan pronunciation, which is how he would say <laughs> that, or delectation. Like he, he does every syllable of every word. And in reality, Robert Greene wrote that critique of Shakespeare early on, called him an upstart crow, borrowing the feathers of others. I think it was the idea was that he was a plagiarist and a copycat. Robert Greene, the real Robert Greene, died not long after he wrote that. So in the show, they have the Robert Greene live on as his rival who keeps trying to trip him up. Uh, my, my kids uh, like to imitate him uh, quite a bit. Good day, <laughs> he will say as he, as he exits the room backwards, you know. So anyway... <laughs> Your kids, yeah, your kids are going to be unlike their peers <laughs> if they keep watching this show. Hey, we have to stop here. Rob Weiner-Kent is an arts journalist and editor of American Theater Magazine. He reviewed the BBC sitcom Upstart Crow for AmericaMagazine.org. And thus we end. All is well that ends well. Thank you for listening, and thanks for putting up with our summer Shakespeare show. 